being able to confront those emotions, feel them and make it to the other side gives such a great sense of pride and capableness. And especially when you have struggled with difficult emotions, being able to feel your emotions and cope with them in a safe way is something that's amazing. Welcome back to I'm Trying the Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and it's a pleasure, as always, to have you here listening. It is so exciting to be back in the podcasting world, doing interviews again and solo episodes, and I'm just really excited to, I don't know, keep connecting and bringing y'all like new, new people, new perspectives, new thoughts to ponder about. Um, yeah, it's just so sweet. And the other day, so I work at Two Hands here in Austin, which you might know, maybe you don't, who knows. And the other day, I guess when I wasn't there because I was in Denver, Colorado, uh, somebody came in and told my coworker that they were like asked if I was there and said they loved the podcast. And when I came back and she told me this happened, I was like, God damn it. I love when that happens. I love to connect with you guys when I do meet you. So I was so sad that I missed it. And if it was you, and if you're listening to this episode by chance, even though this episode will be out like two months after this happened, please reach out on Instagram because I would love to connect. I just, I don't know. It makes my heart happy and reminds me why I do this. And I don't know, just like these episodes are meant to make y'all feel less alone in your struggles and issues and stuff. Sometimes I need the connection with you all to remind myself that I am not alone in these struggles either. So yeah, that's just my roundabout way of expressing love and gratitude to you all listening. But for today's episode, man oh man, is it a good one? Am I excited for it? That's why I'm rambling. That's why I'm so hyped right now because we just finished recording. It is with Sadie of She Persisted Podcast and overall just creation. She's on Instagram. She has her own website. I cannot express like how inspired I am. As you hear us discuss in this episode, I feel like there's so much, so many resources, so much education, all that out there for mental health, emotional health, etc. But a lot of it is fr- coming from people in like their later 20s, 30s, whatever it is. And so to find somebody else that is technically a Gen Z, even though I don't fully identify as a Gen Z, um, to find someone in this similar age range doing so much work and advocating and providing resources for mental health and of her own experiences is fucking inspiring. And I'm so happy that she came on and shared her story with us all, gave advice, gave tips. We just really connected well. And so I'm really hoping that y'all resonate and connect with this conversation as well. I'll wrap it up though so you can start listening, but if you want to connect, learn more, etc., I'll have both of our Instagrams tagged below as well as her her podcast. And if you like this episode or if you like this show I'm trying in particular, it would mean oh so much if you could leave a rate and review, share with friends, share on Instagram, share on TikTok, I don't know, wherever people are sharing nowadays. It's just an easy, simple, quick way to support the show and support the guests that come on it so that we can keep sharing and creating for this community. But I'll wrap it up there. I hope you all enjoy and let's connect if you do. Without further ado, here's Sadie. Well, as I mentioned just a minute ago, I've heard bits and pieces of your stories. I followed along um, and I just, I've always been inspired by the fact of how openly you share and how you're advocating and helping for others in this age range we're in where we are in our like early twenties. And there's just not a lot of that happening. I know for me personally, why I got into this field was because I was living, listening to all these podcasts and following Instagram accounts. They were always like much, much older than me. And while that's fine, there is like a relatability piece that was always missing. And so I love to connect with others that are, you know, within my age range and with this community as well, just to share, you know, just another side, another glimpse of it as well. So I'd love if you're open to it, if we could just kind of walk through your story and where things began, where they are now, and sort of like what happened in between to get you where you are today with She Persisted and doing the work you are. Um, So I guess that being said, when did your mental health journey begin for you? Like, let's, let's walk back a bit. Yeah. So I started feeling more depressed, more anxious, more overwhelmed, lonely, whatever words you attach to it 
in the end of middle school, so seventh and eighth grade, and I can look back and have a lot more clarity on like what was going on there, what furthered the emotions that I was feeling, how I was coping ineffectively. But in the moment, it was all just so overwhelming and confusing. I didn't understand what I was feeling because I was so young at the time. I mean, I even like in the past couple of years, I feel like people are more aware of things like depression and suicidal ideation and diagnoses and treatment, um, especially with shows like 13 Reasons Why and Euphoria. But I had never really seen another teenager my age become severely depressed or require intensive mental health treatment. That was so far out of my awareness. And it might have just been me having the blinders on just so consumed in what I was experiencing because so many teens do struggle. But when I started losing interest in things and isolating from friends and having more conflicts with my parents and my sleep was disrupted and my self-esteem plummeted, there was nothing in me that was like, oh, maybe I'm depressed. I really just thought that this was how I functioned and this was how I, I felt. This was my baseline. And I think that something that's unique with adolescent and teenage depression and anxiety compared to adult depression, anxiety, whatever diagnosis it is, because you already forget like the formative years of your childhood. And these things oftentimes slowly creep up. So when you get to the point of being severely depressed at 13, 14, you're like, well, I've been this way forever. Like, this is just how my life is. And you also once if you decide you want to try and feel better, if you decide you want to try and pursue recovery, it's very difficult to feel motivated and driven towards an end goal because for me, there was no emotional attachment to that end goal. I didn't know what happy looked like, felt like. Obviously, I'd been happy at different points in my life, but when you are depressed, you are so consumed with the negative emotions. Your predisposition is to focus on those things. The research show that people that are depressed, they just have a heightened sense of emotional activation when it comes to these negative things. They're less likely to remember these positive moments. You just get all consumed in this negativity. And so that was very true for me. And I did not think that I was capable of being happy. It was so difficult to stay motivated towards getting better when I didn't feel like that was in my capacity or that I even remembered that at any point in my life. And because I was so young when I became depressed, I really had a lot of blame towards my parents because I was like, I've had minimal autonomy over my life. You've you've raised me. You've made a lot of decisions thus far. So this must be your fault. And there was a huge lack of accountability there. And it just added fuel to the fire because I, I didn't want to talk to them. I wasn't open. I wasn't vulnerable. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't voice the emotions I was experiencing. And so my mom did observe that I was having super disrupted sleep. My relationships had shifted a lot. We were in a lot more conflict. I was in my room all the time. I was seemed really like tired and exhausted. Um, I, I wasn't eating a lot. I was over-exercising. So a lot of these things, I was very tearful, um, just lots of emotions, I would say. I had a couple of panic attacks. I self-harmed one time, and that was a whole thing. That was also a red flag that she thought something was going on. And so I ended up going to my pediatrician midway through my eighth grade year. And he gave me the the depression questionnaire that they used to diagnose you with like, have you lost interest in things you used to enjoy? Are you feeling low or decreased mood? Is your sleep disruptive? Are you eating more or less? All of these things that I'd never heard in a list before. And it was so validating that there was all of these, a name for all of these random symptoms that I thought were just normal. Like this was an actual understood experience and it wasn't crazy or weird or unique. It was something that many people struggled with. And there was also like a really nice way to organize it and encapsulate these things, which as a type A person I loved, but also I struggled so much to verbalize and describe what I was experiencing that that was very validating. And I remember I just broke down into tears because it was the first time that I'd, I'd ever heard what I was experiencing voiced. And in such a, a I don't even know what way I would describe it, but I, it, 
it definitely, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what is happening. Like that is my day-to-day experience and has been for months. And so I very clearly was very depressed. And there was also that huge lack of communication between me and anyone else. I was shut down. I was isolating. I didn't want to talk about what I was experiencing. And so he said, your mom made a psychiatrist appointment later today. You either go to that or you go to the hospital. And I was like, I will be going to the appointment. And I, I went there and things were just escalating so quickly with the emotions I was experiencing and I wasn't really coping with them. I was just really, really depressed at that point. And so I got to the appointment and she asked me, how are you feeling? Like, how can you describe what's going on? And I just shut down. I didn't say anything for the whole appointment. At one point she was like, can you draw a pie chart of your feelings? And I don't remember what I drew because I was just so out of it, but I think I was like completely sad. 100% sad is the emotions happening. And so she decided that I definitely needed to be hospitalized at that point. And it's very different in every state. I was actually having a conversation with my therapist about this a couple of weeks ago about how quick people are to hospitalize patients in California compared to other states. And like depression isn't necessarily like a qualifying reason to be hospitalized. Like most of the time it's you're a harm to yourself or for other people. Um, and in certain states, like there's a really high bar for what they why you would be in the hospital because that's obviously a very drastic step to take and I was 13 at that point so that's just an interesting little California culture thing that's kind of different in the treatment world but being in the hospital for seven or ten days it was the adolescent psychiatric unit allowed me to kind of remove myself from the environment um, and kind of just get out of that really low depressive spot and it really kick-started the mental health treatment journey that I went down so As I was discharged from there, I started doing intensive outpatient, and then that led to outpatient dialectical behavioral therapy, and we started family therapy, and I started medication for the first time. So that was really the beginning of my treatment journey. And so that was halfway through my eighth grade year. I was 13, and for the next year, I continued to try resources locally. So I ended up being hospitalized three more times for depression, suicidal ideation, and a suicide attempt. And in between those, I did intensive outpatient twice. I did outpatient DBT twice. Um, I'm pretty sure twice. It might have been once, but I'm pretty sure it was twice. Um, I did a lot of family therapy. There was CBT, individual therapy, psychotherapy, group therapy, all mixed in there. And nothing was really shifting. I did feel somewhat better. Like I felt like I was equipped with the skills that I needed to not feel as overwhelmed. There was some more understanding about what was going on, but from a behavioral perspective and like a general mental health perspective, I was still really struggling. Like I was severely depressed. I was very suicidal. I was having like seven panic attacks a day at some point. My my attendance was suffering. I had all these maladaptive coping mechanisms. So things weren't shifting enough to where it was like, this is working. Let's continue down this path. And so After the fourth time I was hospitalized, my treatment providers were like, this isn't working. Like there's there's no point in continuing to try these specific resources if things aren't shifting. And so my parents did a ton of research and they found this residential treatment program right outside of Boston at McLean Hospital called Three East. And they specialize in something called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is DBT for short. And what DBT is, is it's an evidence-based, pretty intensive structured treatment for individuals that are pretty much struggling with emotion regulation is how I would describe it. It was originally developed for adults that were suicidal and diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. But since then, there's been dozens of studies showing its effectiveness in the adolescent population for people that are just suicidal, for depression diagnoses, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, a huge spectrum of things. And so This program specializes in adolescent depression and anxiety in teenage girls. And so I was halfway through my freshman year of high school when I moved across the country and started living at McLean, which is a mental hospital. And I was so terrified because I Googled it and the first two things that popped up were one, it was the hospital that Girl Interrupted was based on. And two, it used to be an asylum because it's been around for so many years now. And I was like, oh, dear God, where am I going? I'm terrified. But it was a really, I don't, I like therapeutically it was a lovely place you definitely are in a mental hospital like it hasn't been remodeled in a ton of years like you're 
it's just an experience. But therapeutically, it was a game changer. And I remember I flew across the country with my parents. We got to the intake appointment. And the first thing they're like, do you want your parents in the room or do you want them to leave? And I was like, they can leave. I don't want them here. And they'd just flown across the country. They'd done all this research. They were committing themselves and me to this mental health journey we were embarking on. They were dedicating their time and their money and all of these things to support me. And I just had so much anger and blame towards them. And I was in this room with probably 14 different clinicians, whether it was psychiatrists, therapists, psychologists, social workers, the day-to-day people I would be interacting with, um, the, the, I don't even know, so many individuals that work on this unit. And they said, do you want to be here? And I said, no, I can't go home. I can't go to my other therapy program, but I've already done DBT and it didn't work. So this isn't going to work either. And they, in the nicest way possible, were like, See, that's not true because we've seen hundreds of girls that were are exactly in your spot and are struggling with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. And we've been able to help them. And not only that, but the evidence shows that DBT is a really effective way to help alleviate the symptoms that you're feeling and the emotion dysregulation and all of these things. But they were very clear that none of that was going to happen and that wasn't going to work unless I saw the wisdom in DBT treatment and wise mind is a DBT thing. It's a huge part of the that therapy. And it's the idea that you are balancing both the rational side of things. So the evidence that showed that DBT does work for um, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, family conflict, emotional dysregulation, self-harm, suicidal ideation, all these things. And they were the best program in the country. This is a Harvard-affiliated medical school. These clinicians are highly qualified. So there was this logical part that was very true. And then there was the emotional part, which was that I had to trust them um, to help me. And that meant being vulnerable and actually opening up about what I was struggling with. And it meant wanting to get better and cultivating some degree of self-compassion to want a better life for myself and to want a life for myself where I wasn't consumed with sadness and overwhelm and depression. And that self-compassion really didn't look like, oh, I love myself. I really want a great life. It was like moving from, I hate this. I deserve to be depressed. Nothing will ever change because this is how my life is supposed to be. And I hate myself so much to maybe in this tiny 0.1 probability possibility, I could feel better. And I guess that wouldn't be so bad. Like that's kind of what that quote unquote self-compassion looked at that point, but it was just moving somewhere away from this isn't going to work. I don't want it to work and I'll go through the motions, but things won't change. And so that was the first time that I wanted to get better. And I saw a potential future where I wasn't depressed and I trusted people to help me. And I was vulnerable about what I was struggling with. And so I was there for 14 weeks. And during those 14 weeks, I did a lot of different things, whether it was like medication management, family therapy, um, understanding my core belief systems that were leading to or furthering the depression I was experiencing, understanding my anxiety enough to cope with it rather than just having it like happen to me and being at a loss of how to move forward. And a big part of the 14 weeks there was the skills education. So that's the most, the biggest component of DBT, I would say, is learning these skills. And they're broken down into modules of mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. So when people are struggling emotionally, their needs aren't met, a lot of the times they develop really ineffective ways to cope with the emotions and get those needs met in any way possible. So for me, that was the suicidal ideation. That was the repeated hospitalizations, the self-harm, the blame towards my parents, um, so many different things. And so DBT makes it really clear how to get back to that effective way of functioning, how to advocate for your objective, how to validate someone, how to distract yourself in a tough moment, but then revisit the situation and proceed mindfully, how to sit in the present moment. Um, All of these different things that if you're functioning well, you're probably doing. But if you are feeling overwhelmed and distressed and uncertain how to proceed. It's a really clear way to deal with the emotions that are arising and be effective. So that was one part of it. The other biggest shift that I will identify from that 14 weeks was starting to understand my belief systems that I was operating by. So I had these core beliefs 
And by core belief, I mean like in the deepest, darkest part of my soul, this is what I believe to be most true. And it impacted every relationship, every interaction, every belief I held about myself, my self-esteem. And so I believed that I wasn't deserving of love. I believed that I would never be good enough for my parents. And I believed that I was going to be depressed forever. And that meant that every relationship I went to, went into or interacted with, I didn't feel like it was authentic or genuine or that I could receive the love that others felt for me. I couldn't be vulnerable. It meant that it was so difficult for me to tell my parents that it wasn't okay because that would make me less deserving of this love that I wasn't already wasn't deserving of. And so I started to understand how those beliefs were impacting my relationships and my life and then work to rewire them, work to shift the behaviors that were popping up as a result. And those things, I, I always think it's important to, important to identify that, like, I didn't think I deserved my parents' love, but that wasn't their intention. Like, they were trying to be the best parents that they knew how to be, and they, they, they loved me, they cared about me, maybe they weren't the most effective, but no parents are the most effective at all times. And so, communicating to them that that was how I felt and that was how I was experiencing our relationship was a big like wake up moment for them and so they at the same time this is one of my favorite parts of that program is that while the kids or the teens are learning these skills day in and day out every week the parents do the same skills group and they learn the same skills they learn how to validate they learn how to regulate their emotions to be more effective in conflict all of those things and so it's a really cool thing that you're both learning skills to both be more effective in the relationship. And not only was it just an amazing program and DBT is just such an amazing treatment modality, but I think being away from home and having that distance from an environment that was so overwhelming for me really allowed me to learn these skills in a way that felt safe for me. And then I could re-enter the environment and be effective and not relapse into these emotions or these thought patterns that I had solidified over years. So I think that's another thing that I can attribute the, the shift to of doing DBT at home versus at residential. And the end of those 14 weeks, I was no longer suicidally depressed. I felt like I had some awareness of how I could cope with my mental health and navigate challenges that arose. And I went to a therapeutic boarding school for 14 months to kind of continue that progress, to continue to maintain that stability because 14 weeks isn't that long. I remember I thought I was done with my mental health journey. I was trying to find a sleep study to give to a doctor last week. And I we have all my patient notes from my time at McLean. And one of them was like, patient reports being done with therapy and has finished her mental health work. And I was like, oh, if only you knew. Um, because it's it's never ending um, and not in a bad way, but we're always changing and improving and growing. And um, and there's a lot of beauty in that. But I, I really thought I was done. I was like, I'm not suicidal. I'm not depressed. This is as much as I can do. I think I can go home now and just live my life. But I continue to maintain that progress. And I remember a year and a half into this treatment journey, I had a moment where I realized that everything that everyone had told me had come true. And just like you mentioned at the beginning, how adults are like, oh, it gets better, but it's really hard to resonate with that. That was exactly what I experienced where they were saying it, but I really didn't believe it. And I didn't believe it until it really happened that I had months, if not a year under my belt of being happy and feeling capable of taking ownership of my mental health and coping effectively and building healthy relationships and advocating for myself and having healthy habits in place. And so I wanted to share that with everyone. I was like, if I could do this, then anyone can also, because I just so firmly believed it wasn't possible. And I also had access to so many resources that either people don't have access to or aren't necessarily like not everyone needs to take a year and a half out of their life or a medical leave of absence from their freshman year of high school to work on their mental health. Some people totally do. But also these skills that I learned can also be applied to stress and burnout and anxiety about starting a new at college and making new friends and being more effective and communicating with your parents. So I, I wanted to share those skills because I was aware of how lucky I was. And again, like you mentioned, there, throughout the entire time I was in treatment, there was no narrative of teenagers that had truly fully recovered saying, I it gets better. And I can tell you that because I've done that. I've done this too. And there was 
teens that were in it with me and they were like, oh, this is hard. There was a lot of validation there. There was a lot of support. There was a great community, but the truly being recovered and being on the other side of things as a, as a reminder that it's possible and something to work towards, I did feel that was lacking. So I started She Persisted and I began by just sharing my journey and what parents could look for, what friends could look for, because I really hid so much of my struggle. I really did my best. I didn't want to be vulnerable. It was so uncomfortable for me. So check, like explaining what red flags were, talking about what we wish we would have done different. I interviewed my parents and my siblings and my therapists. And then I think like 10 or 15 episodes in, I was like, I can't keep talking about myself this much week after week. And so I started creating the resource that I wish I would have had. So teaching those DBT skills, interviewing experts on things like anxiety and self-esteem and confidence and romantic relationships and parent relationships and all of these things that I wish I would have known more about um, or had access to or had an awareness of. And so now I'm 107 episodes in and still sharing any mental health wisdom that I can and going deep on a lot of different topics that relate to teen mental health. And it's, it's so fulfilling and it's something that I really, truly am passionate about. And it's funny because when I started the podcast, from an like academic career perspective, I was like, I, I want to help people. I always knew that I wanted to help people in some way. And so I was like, I love kids. I'm going to be a pediatric surgeon. And I, I had that as my, my career goal for a while, but I took AP chemistry and was like, this is not happening. <laughs> There's not a chance. And then the other thing um, was that I realized that I had been I had this fear that if I went into the mental health world, that I would revisit all the suffering and struggle and pain that I experienced and I would relapse. And I was like, it just hits too close to home. Those emotions are just so overwhelming and big and don't want to go through that again. And so I was like, I don't think I could do that. But then I realized I had been doing that. I'd been posting this podcast every week and talking about these things in depth and I wasn't relapsing. And if anything, I was continuing on a positive trajectory because I kept revisiting these topics and learning more and being vulnerable um, and talking about the things that are uncomfortable. And so when it came time to apply to colleges and be like, okay, what's my next step here? It was so clear. It was that I wanted to become a clinical psychologist and continue to do the podcast and share whatever I could um, in the hopes that it would be helpful for other teens. And, and even though in the moment, like when I was in the thick of it, there was no rhyme or reason or understanding of why this was happening to me. Um, there's a lot of understanding now because there's just such a clear sense of purpose and I would never wish what I went through on anyone else. And I mean, I wouldn't change it, but I wouldn't go through it again if I had the choice, but um, I it, it's worth it. And it's given me so much joy on the other end of things. And yeah, that's, that's the story. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing that because yeah. it's true, just as you were saying in the beginning, like these experiences are not in, especially in our like age range, our generation even are just not, discussed enough I mean it's becoming more and more common but um yeah I guess I'm curious now like so much to say on all that but I want to start with my immediate thought which is similar to you I had I think my issue was that you know probably what you experienced too as children when we're experiencing these insane emotions we we don't know how to how to describe them or we're not given like the right words or the education on how to describe how we're feeling or to label these emotions And, you know, oftentimes kids are quirky anyway, so it's hard for parents or caretakers to kind of see that as well. So for me, it, it was a long, long battle with depression, but I sort of got it camouflaged by an eating disorder. And so I went through treatment. And so similar to you, I had this kind of unconventional upbringing in which, you know, you, you don't, you don't just get to be a normal kid and you don't just get to have these experiences and go to school, whatever it is. Like there's just these things along the way. And I think with that too, there's a lot of like mental turmoil going on. There's memory stuff, whatever it is. So I'm just curious now that you're in this place and you're doing the work, like, do you find it hard to resonate with others of your age? Do you find it hard to like, feel like you're part of like a general community, whatever it is? Like, do you feel like any part of your sort of like social experience has been impacted by those years? And if so, like, have you found ways to work on that or to help out? 
I'm asking because I'm working through the same thing right now where I'm trying to like reteach myself like I feel like crucial social skills that I missed yeah. out on <laughs> no, when totally. I was like going into treatment and when I was hospitalized and things like that so I guess like what's been your experience with that like how are you kind of like learning those skills that we both might have missed out on in all those kind yeah. of critical years of you know year as a kid as a teenager yeah no they're it's a big thing. And there's a lot of grief for what I did lose and being in treatment for so long. Um, and, and so many emotions have arisen there, like not so much blame at my parents, but like, why, why did we have to keep doing this? And of course I understand. And I'm glad it happened the way it did, but I wouldn't want any 13 year old to be spending their, their week in the psych hospital or having their entire sophomore year be in the middle of nowhere, Montana with 40 other girls doing intensive therapy. Like it's just not the teenage experience. And I was lucky that it happened early enough that it didn't totally disrupt things like I had the last two years of high school kind of because COVID sucks but I I kind of was able to return to that and I think as far as reintegrating what allowed me to not feel so isolated or on the outside was that the current present mindset that I was in was very similar to that of my my peers. And yes, I had this wealth of experience and a lot of therapy skills that they probably didn't and a lot of random stories that they couldn't relate to. But what I cared about and and the way I spent my time was very similar and that we were all stressed about college applications or what classes we were taking. And we were maybe like working jobs on the weekends and we just wanted to spend time together. And all of these things that are normal teenage things. And I was experiencing similar challenges to them because my days weren't now filled with depression or anxiety or panic attacks or treatment appointments. It was just like normal emotions that most people experience. And so I think that was the biggest shift was getting to the emotional stability that my peers were at. And that allowed me to actually engage in those relationships and connect and focus on the present rather than jumping into a relationship or introducing myself and diving into the year and a half I just spent in treatment. It was more like, hi, I'm Sadie. These are my interests. These are the classes I'm taking. What about you? And not like, hi, I'm Sadie. I just came from a therapeutic boarding school a week week ago. How's junior year going? Um, And so it was really focusing on the present and focusing on my emotions then and connecting based on this new identity that I had kind of constructed, which was not, hi, I'm Sadie, I'm depressed and anxious. So I'm Sadie, I'm a normal person and I have normal emotions and interests and other things. And so I think that was a really key shift that I saw And I did feel so isolated and on the outside when I was struggling freshman, eighth grade year. Like I just remember not having the energy, not wanting to interact with everyone, but just being like, no one gets it. Like I'm in so much pain. Like I can't even fathom having a conversation with someone because all I can think about is these thoughts or these emotions or something that happened yesterday that was so overwhelming. And so that was something that I absolutely did experience, but it was getting to an emotional stability um, and mental health spot where I could relate to people in that present moment and really just focusing on that. And then as you, it's just a lot of acceptance. In DBT, there's a skill called radical acceptance where you 150% accept the circumstances that you are in, whether that whether you created them for yourself or you didn't. And you then after you've accepted them, you could maybe work to improve them. You could make them worse if that's the decision you make. You accept them and you you feel the emotions that arise with that. And I think that's just been crucial because I can't change the fact that I didn't really have a sophomore year and half my freshman year I was in hospital. Um, and then I didn't really get junior and senior year because of COVID. Really just a lot of acceptance and giving myself with the grace with the emotions that arise and then leading into the relationships with the people that get it. So when I'm having a really rough day and I'm like, why did I spend a year of my life in the troubled teen industry? No one deserves this. I call my friends and I I complain or I cry or I'm like, can you believe this happened? And even if it's just like one of my friends at home that doesn't get it, having relationships where no matter what you're experiencing, they help you feel seen and heard and validated and expressing those emotions rather than avoiding them um, has, has really gotten me through it. And I think with regards to other social things, like 
there's just so many little things like whether I was at an all-girls boarding school so dating and romantic relationships or just like normal conversations or even I think everyone has experienced this a bit post-COVID going back into these interactions being more social being part of community the the advice there is whatever feels uncomfortable to do it and to go towards that because it'll start feeling less uncomfortable and even if you're like it feels uncomfortable to go on a date and or like something like that or it feels uncomfortable to join this I don't know acapella group and then you join it and you're like it felt uncomfortable because this is terrible and I don't like singing you tried it and then you live and you learn and you move on and you're not adding more emotional fuel to the fire by avoiding things and so um I think that's something that everyone can implement in a small way whether it's like it feels uncomfortable to go out and eat rather than eating at home, or it feels uncomfortable to study at the library instead of in my room. Doing those little things um, just to normalize those feelings of apprehension and working through them and making it to the other side, it gives you a great sense of capableness and pride. Being able to confront those emotions, feel them, and make it to the other side gives such a great sense of pride and capableness and Especially when you have struggled with difficult emotions, being able to feel your emotions and cope with them in a safe way is something that's amazing to, and to show yourself like I can do this and I I can survive it and I can feel okay about it. So I would say it's just leaning into what feels uncomfortable and whether that's just when you feel uncomfortable doing it or making yourself like a little, um, exposure, like OCD treatment, they call it an exposure therapy hierarchy. So if you are scared of introducing yourself to someone and making new friends, you would maybe start by ordering a coffee and maybe that's really nerve wracking to you or calling someone and making an appointment and then canceling it. And then you eventually work up to like going up to a stranger and asking them for a favor, but like, Oh, I'm sorry. Can you take a picture of me for my mom or something like that? Um, and then introducing yourself to someone, just making conversation, but you'll never see them again. So there's nothing at stake there. And then finally getting to the point where you introduce yourself to people, you start to make friends, you continue to maintain that relationship. And so that's another way you can kind of hold yourself more accountable and have more structure rather than just being like, I'm going to go towards what feels uncomfortable because that can be super vague. See, I think that's my issue is that I'm, I've real, I realized after a while, I'm like, okay, when I'm afraid of something, I have to go after it because you yeah. know, otherwise it's what you're going to say, but I'm such a like black and white type A, like, I'm just like, okay, full throttle. I'm afraid of dating. Like, let's go on like every day (laughs) and but then I get so like my nervous system gets so like triggered because I'm obviously getting triggered like I'm getting fearful anxious whatever and then I just put myself in such a state of like I don't know it's just like it's in such an uncomfortable state my anxiety like everything's triggered so Mm -hmm. then I spiral and then I have to completely backtrack because I didn't like set myself up for success so I love that idea because that's like part of the I'm trying concept is that like every day, like you're trying at something, you know, and, mm-hmm. but the idea is that you're trying in like little microwaves, you know, it's not yeah. like zero to a hundred. It's not struggling to recover. It's not happy to depress, depressed, happy, you know, it's like, Either, it goes both ways. Um, so it's like, you know, micro steps, whatever. So I love that idea. Um, and I've heard of exposure therapy, but once again, in my mind, I was like, okay, exposure, Full just way. exposed to everything. Yeah. But yeah. I think having that hierarchy and the steps for it, and even thinking through like, what, what are the steps I could take, you know, we're looking online to see if you can find examples, whatever it is. I absolutely love that idea. And I think that's, that's definitely what sounds like a better idea, you know, just in regards yeah. to almost like, also like retraining your nervous system and making yourself and your, your spirit and your mind and everything just feel like safe in this process versus just, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I love that that aspect. I think a really good rule of thumb with most things mental health because we like we there's still a lot of stigma going on. We aren't all fully versed in all of these like mental health like lingos or processes or ways that we can become more effective is to compare it to physical health. So just like you wouldn't run a marathon on no training, you wouldn't do these really scary things that bring you a lot of anxiety without working up to it. Um, another good example is like going to therapy. If you have like a lot of resistance there, you're like, oh, I would never see a therapist because, oh, the only people that are like, 
I don't even know, crazy do that. Mm -hmm. Well, if you were sick, you would go to a doctor. So if you're struggling emotionally, you would go to a doctor. And so it's like comparing those two things. um, It makes it kind of not easier, but you can kind of check yourself and what emotional resistance is there um, by by comparing it to something equivalent physically, because there's much less stigma and emotional activation there. Yeah, I think that even applies to lifestyle aspects, right? Because I know for the longest time, I've always prioritized like physical health because that was part of my eating disorder as part of all that struggle. But then there hit this point where my mental health was such shit. Like I had never acknowledged it. I'd never did the work, you know, it, it get really bad and we would all react and try to help me and fix me, whatever. But it wasn't, we didn't create it into like a sustainable thing or we didn't treat it as like the physical thing. And the one time somebody said it to me or I heard on a podcast, it was just like the idea concept of like, you know, you're prioritizing like movement or exercise or this food or whatever, like physical health attributes, like every day of the week, or at least five, six days of the week. And yet like you, you wait until it's, you know, drastic circumstance to do anything for your mental health. So like, what if you, what if you did journal every day or, you know, most days, like you do your physical health or what if you did meditate or what if you did have, you know, bi-weekly therapy or whatever it was. And that just like changed the game for me. Cause I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like mental health for me and emotional health has to be a lifestyle factor. It can't be this like last resort, stick a bandaid on it type of idea. Like I had to learn to integrate it into like my everyday living so that I'm sustaining it, you know, so that I'm like really like practicing what I'm talking and preaching and looking for versus just waiting till everything goes to hell. So I, yeah, I think that is such a like crucial thing is like your mental, emotional well-being is equivalent to physical like they all play into each other yeah and even if you're someone that's like well I prioritize my physical health above my mental health or I prioritize my education or my career more than I prioritize my mental health it's a tough pill to swallow but if you don't prioritize your mental health none of those things will be possible Mm -hmm. I was a really driven student I liked school I'm now at the University of Pennsylvania but I took a medical leave of absence from an entire semester of school because I wasn't emotionally capable of sitting through a school day or being in a class or absorbing anything because I was so suicidally depressed and anxious like something has to give and your mental health isn't just something you can count on. It requires you to maintain it and invest in it and learn skills and equip yourself to navigate the challenges that life throws at you, just like your career, education, relationships, physical health. It's, it should be a pillar that's right up there with everything else. Yeah. And I think the more people talk about that and they normalize it, like I know for me, when I was going to college, I was extremely unwell mentally. I was like, extreme depressive episode. I was extremely physically unwell. I was really struggling with my eating disorder and I didn't know it at the time, but I had like a chronic illness. So I was just like a wreck, but I didn't even once consider like stopping and work, you know, caring for that. So I went to college and I was there for like the first week and it became so, so clear to me, mind you, I, I could barely, like, I was struggling every day of my senior year of high school just to get through the day. I was so unwell, but I just kept going. Cause like you, you know, I was like straight A student, like it was it was my life, you know, it was like my life plan. I was following the path. So then I went to college and like the first week, I just, it became abundantly clear to me. I was like, I'm, I'm not well, like I need to prioritize what's happening here. Cause otherwise like this isn't going to get better. And so it was like, I, I did leave and for multiple reasons, but like getting my mental and physical health on track was like a big part of that. But at the time I felt so much like shame and guilt about it. Cause nobody was talking about it. You know, I was like, why can't I just be strong enough to like push through and just do it? And just like, I don't know. It just felt weird. I had people like saying how like, oh, if you take a break, like you might never go back. Like they were making it such an ordeal. And I was like, looking back now, I was like, I so wish I had somebody or more people to remind me and let me know, like, it's okay to prioritize your health and wellness if you are able to. And if you, you know, it can be a privilege, I suppose it is. But like, if you're able to like, I don't know. It's just like, you got to ask yourself what's, what's more valuable to your life in this moment, you know, like your yeah. well-being or following this path that you can always start again. I don't yeah. know. No, I really drew do believe that without your mental health, you don't have anything. Like, regardless of what your goals are in life, whether it's to have a great relationship or if you want to get your doctorate and all of these amazing academic accolades or you want to um, 
I don't like spend all your time volunteering or you want to get a really crazy job that's like super high up in a company. If you can't get out of bed, if you can't show up to class, if you can't stay or if you want to run a marathon, you want to be a crazy athlete, if you can't get to training every day, if you can't stay motivated enough to stay on top of these goals and be a healthy participant in that relationship, it's just everything's going to fall apart. And I think a lot of people forget about that. I did a podcast episode with these two authors, Liz and Molly. It's number 107 is the episode number on She Persisted, but they said something that I think is super relevant. Um, and they were quoting someone else also, and I don't remember who it was, but it's that sometimes life like gives you a little whisper of a feather and that's the way that you get a message from your mind or your body or your environment. And sometimes it hits you like a boulder and we have to learn to listen to those like little tickle from a feather rather than waiting for everything to just fall apart because the message, the warning sign is just as valid and and important and you can save yourself so much stress and struggle if you're just aware earlier on and take ownership of it at that point rather than just being like I'll deal with it later or it's not important or it's not bad yet so this isn't a problem no that's I absolutely love that and I've yeah I mean that's the idea of with burnout you know it's like stopping tapping the brakes before you're like completely crash before you hit that extreme burnout and things start to crumble so I think that's such an important reminder. And I feel like going into that and kind of like the last topic I want to touch on with you is the idea of self-compassion, which I'm so happy you brought up earlier because I'm just like diving full into it lately. Um, But I think self-compassion is something that so many of us just aren't thinking about or we've never really thought about it. I know I just started thinking about it about a year ago when my cousin brought it up. She was doing a bunch of research into it. I was like, oh, yeah compassion for others is obvious to me. I'm like Mm -hmm. a compassionate empath, but compassion for myself, like what, (laughs) what is that? So I, I love that you brought that up and that you had experience with it, but suppose when it comes to like now modern day present life for you, what are some ways you practice self-compassion? And with that, you know, like I'm hoping we can inspire others to sort of like look into this idea, think about this, you know, philosophy and maybe implement practices into their own life just to bring about more of that self-compassion so there's a couple things I think the first thing worth mentioning is like there's a spectrum of like self-esteem self-esteem or however you view yourself self-compassion self-hatred like it's a spectrum and on if on one end you're super depressed you have so much self-hatred and the other end is like self-compassion I love myself you're yelling affirmations the mirror to yourself getting from the point of like hating and despising yourself with every ounce of your being to absolutely loving yourself and believing you deserve all the best things in life is a really hard way. It's a really long way to go. That's a lot of work. And so when I approach self-compassion, because I was at that end of the spectrum where there was none of that, I like to make it a little bit more manageable and just be like, okay, but what if I was like neutral towards myself? What if I wasn't beating myself up? What if I wasn't giving myself no grace? What if I wasn't invalidating every emotion that I had? And doing the opposite of affirmations to myself in the mirror all the time. And I think that's a lot more achievable. Um, And it's it's at least a milestone to get to the point of self-compassion. So I I will say that now I tend to be more middle to the side of self-compassion rather than all the way on the other end. Um, But it's still like everyone, a journey that I'm still on that we're all constantly on. And I think the society we live in doesn't always make that easy. And so self-validation there. Like it's okay that you're not at the point of self-compassion because there are so many reasons beyond your control and messages that we receive that would make it very difficult to get to that point. So like I just mentioned, self-validation is one of the biggest things. So when you have an emotion, just like if your friend was like, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed about a test being like, I'm making space for this emotion and it makes sense that I'm stressed because it feels like the stakes are really high and this is a big percentage of my grade and I want to do well and I want to get good grades and I want to get a good job and this feels like there's a lot at stake here. And so validating your emotions like you would for someone else and giving yourself that same um, dignity and respect and compassion. I think another big thing is giving yourself grace, um, not holding yourself to an impossible standard. So if you are like really on yourself about attendance, if you miss something, being like, it's okay, I'm going to forgive myself, things happen, rather than being like, how could I do this? And just beating yourself out up about it. Um, I think another thing 
self-compassion wise, that's less about your inner monologue and how you speak to yourself, but doing things like giving yourself the gift of doing things that make you feel good and maintain your mental health. So prioritizing yourself, I think is right in line with self-compassion, self-care. So structuring your life in a way that makes you feel good and keeping those priorities to be compassionate and kind to yourself and allow yourself to show up the best version of yourself. So maybe that's being consistent with your sleep schedule. Maybe it's getting outside every day. Maybe it's having healthy relationships that you're consistently engaged in. Maybe it's following creators that make you laugh and smile and improve your mood rather than kind of making you annoyed and angry when you're scrolling on social media. Maybe it's reading a book that you really like. Maybe it's journaling, meditating, exercising, whatever it is, having the compassion and the whatever words you want to use, but making those priorities important so that you can allow yourself to be the best version of yourself rather than being like, why am I not showing up as a good version of myself? But you're not doing anything to allow yourself to get to that point. I love that. It's like the self, not self-analysis, but just like that conversation almost with yourself about like, where am I at? Where do I want to be? what can I do today? Or like, where, where am I at today? And what's possible? And what's like, actually capable of like, myself and my mind and my emotions and everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think big thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is just that idea of like, just in general, having self compassion, self grace, whatever it is, and being okay with the steps, like the daily steps, the little micro steps, like reminding yourself that you are trying, and just doing the best you can day by day. Um, because yeah, we can't go from zero to a hundred. And I think your story is like a great example of that, that things take time and they take yeah. persistence. And it sucks. Like yeah, to yeah, anyone yeah. listening, you're like, you're hearing yeah. it takes time. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I wish it was different. <laughs> you're not like sugarcoating things here. Like yeah. it's just, that's, that's like, that's life, you know? And yeah. I think more and more people, you know, are coming to accept that and they're seeing their own struggles and journeys. So yeah, just thank you so, so much for sharing today. Um, I know like there's a lot that goes into these experiences and sharing it. So I really appreciate you just like opening and sharing with everyone today. Um, But if people are curious, they want to learn more, you have an amazing podcast, so much educational resources, personal resources. Um, Where can they find you? Where can they connect and learn more? Yeah. So my podcast is called She Persisted. You can listen to it on all the podcast platforms and my website, shepersistedpodcast.com. So anything and everything you'd want to know about DVT or the podcast or episode is on there. And then social media and most active on Instagram and TikTok at She Persisted Podcast. Perfect.